Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla 76 where we help B2B manufacturers grow through revenue-focused marketing programs. The past decade or so in the manufacturing sector has brought lots of hype about robotics along with it, but sometimes the flexible systems that many small and medium-sized business leaders were promised have been too complex to effectively deliver on the jobs to be done on the plant floor. My guests today have set out to change that. They're passionate about local economies and helping smaller manufacturers access the robotics technologies that will let them stay competitive. And one niche manufacturing application at a time, they're working to make that happen. Let me introduce them. Colin Riggs is the co-founder and CEO of Rigorous Technology, an industrial robotics company in Williston, Vermont. Rigorous was founded in 2020 in order to make robotics more accessible to small and medium-sized manufacturers. Prior to founding Rigorous, Colin grew his experience at Green Sea IQ, an underwater robotics company. There, he oversaw the design, development, and implementation of dozens of cutting-edge robotic systems for government, research, and private ventures. Colin worked on remotely operated vehicles, autonomous underwater vehicles, submarines, and diver systems. He now brings his experience and point of view to the industrial sector, leveraging next-gen tools, including vision systems and advanced software to increase the operator experience. Diane Abruzzini-Riggs is the co-founder and COO of Rigorous Technology. Diane runs business operations, including marketing, sales, and finance for this growing startup. Diane graduated from UVM's Sustainable Innovation MBA program, after which she focused her career on software and technology businesses. Diane joined Rigorous in 2021, and the company has since grown to a team of 10 with customers across the country, including their home state of Vermont. Rigorous has created turnkey robotics products for corrugated box manufacturing and injection molding. Diane and Colin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you guys here. I've known you for a little bit here and been wanting to get you on the show and I can relate, but things get busy and, but now here we are. So I'm, I'm glad I finally got you nailed down and uh, excited to let you kind of share your story a little bit and talk about what you're doing at Rigorous and kind of where you see the future of robotics. Uh, just such a, an interesting space to be in right now. You know better than me, but I also get to talk to a lot of companies in, in your world and, um, I love having the small robotics companies on here who are growing fast and there's so much opportunity out there. So good to have you here. Absolutely. And things are moving quickly. Since we last connected, we're a team of 11 now. So steady. There you go. <laughs> there you go. You got to keep keep that bio up to date, like on a weekly basis at this point, probably, right? <laughs> Well, very cool. Diane, Colin, wherever you want to start is fine with me, but I'd love to hear a little bit from the two of you about your backstory and how rigorous came to be, like why why you saw this this opportunity or, or need in the market and how you guys got off the ground. Yeah, absolutely. So 
My background actually originally is uh, physics and math. And so, you know, when I was studying physics at the time, I actually had started a, a small farm in Maryland, a little tangentially related, but but bear with me. And so at the time, we you know, we were looking at growing all these different crops. And, and at the time, you know, we we're looking at the tools and we had some pretty wild ambitions about pushing the limits of, of what you could do on a small scale farm. And what we realized, the tools just weren't there to match it. And it was kind of right when I, you know, looked, was looking at robotics and kind of the the math side of all, all this stuff and and really got interested in, in robotics. So at the time when I was in college, I looked for a robotics company and and that's when I came across Greensea. And, and at the time, they were a small company. And so there was about five of us at the time. And, and we were doing the full thing. We were building robots from scratch. I mean, we were doing all the mechanical and all the electrical, and we were doing the software. And at the time when I started, uh, I was doing the numerical analysis and modeling of all the dynamics of these vehicles. And so it was a really cool place to get started. And, and so over the years, I I worked on all kinds of systems. So we did 6,000 meter deep sea robotics. I mean, it, it was it was to the to the full limit. I mean, we, we sent systems down to the bottom and some of these were remotely operated. So they have a tether that goes from the ship down to the bottom and, and you have cameras and there's a, a pilot and sometimes there's multiple pilots working together to accomplish some sort of task. We did autonomous systems. So systems that weren't on a tether, they're battery operated and they would go down to 6,000 meters and they were oftentimes uh, using different technologies like sonar to search for objects and to relay that information back to the ship. We did diver systems. So we were sending people out with scuba gear on autonomous sleds that you could program and it could take you anywhere you wanted and you could jump off of it and it could, you could ask it to come back to you. I mean, really incredible stuff. And so we, we got to go all over the world and it was just such an amazing experience with Green Sea. Definitely, if anybody's listening, check them out. They're a really cool company. Yeah. A lot bigger now. And you know, at some point in time, I, I was really focused in my early days, I was very focused on the engineering and mechanical and electrical side and where software and hardware intersect and, and how that operator, the person using it, you know, typically we would work with groups like explosive ordnance disposal and special operations groups. And we would really, you know, they're under a lot of pressure, as you can imagine. And that experience that they have is very critical. And they're they're operating something that's very complex and dynamic in an environment that is also complex and dynamic. And so it's very critical for that that diver or that operator of an underwater robot knows exactly what's going on somewhere else. That experience really you know, in, informed a lot. We feel these things all over the world with all different types of skill levels and all different types of tasks. And when one of the amazing experiences that I got was I saw a lot of different architectures, I saw a lot of different mechanical architectures, electrical architectures, software architectures, and how those things work together. And it formed this opinion, you know, that I have and have formed over years. And so, you know, eventually I have always wanted to start a company and, and same with Diane. And, and so that was one of the reasons we wanted to do this together. And it was just the right time. You know, in a lot of ways, we were always in that those farming roots, and those agricultural roots were, were something that that we were always been very interested. In. But more than that is local economies and, you know, having that small to medium sized manufacturer or agriculture and, and having access to new tools and new technologies that help people stay competitive and, and work into the future. So something that we've always been very passionate about local and, and bringing in new technologies and new ways of thinking and new experiences for operators and and in machinery and so so we wanted to start rigorous and and we really wanted to focus on industrial we knew that you know there, there's a lot of need in that space there's a lot of energy right now with bringing manufacturing back to the united states and it's something that we're passionate about is seeing you know kind of local communities and communities in the u.s small and medium-sized manufacturers having better access to, to technologies that really make a difference and add value to their operations. 
Diane, feel free to jump in and, and build on that if you'd like. But I also wanted to, you know, ask you guys have picked some very specific niches, like corrugated boxes, for example. What led you into some of the the niches that you've chosen? Because there, I mean, there are so many very niche robotics companies out there at this point, small ones, big ones. But I'm curious how you found that opportunity and said, oh, we got to go all in right here. Uh, I know you're working on a few different things, but tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, good question. So what we look for in our development programs are problems that are typically too challenging to be solved by traditional robotic integrations, but not so challenging that we don't feel confident that we can accomplish it. In addition to that, we need to make sure that the product we stand up has applicability to other businesses and isn't just for one use case. So we look for niche applications inside of industry that we can replicate, but that haven't been solved before. So for example, in corrugated box manufacturing, corrugated boxes are a natural product. You know, a lot of people think of them as living, breathing items. And that comes with a range of consistency factors. If it's humid, it can be a heavier box, depending on how it went through other machines. Sometimes they're still stuck together. There are a lot of factors that determine how the boxes show up to a machine or to a robot. And so using robotic system with vision systems that can do things like fault detection or align something correctly on the conveyor so that the robot can always grab it at the same time, or will flag if something seems so extreme that it likely will cause a fault or jam the machine. Embedding those things into the robotic system means that it's going to work really well for the operators. And so we're looking for systems just like that. And that's what we found with our first product that we launched last year, the Box Hopper. I love it how you've kind of found niche problems, but you're figuring out how to almost productize around that, like figure out how to how to make it scalable and help more people than just having kind of one-off applications. It seems like a really, really smart business decision and and also great to fill a, a very specific need out there. So really, really cool. Exactly. And a lot of our products are actually built on the same building blocks. So we create these modules that get repurposed across different products and also across different industries. And that way we're starting where 50 to 80% of the work is already done and field tested. So as we take new programs, we're not designing everything from scratch. We're always building upon what we've done before. And so we're looking to both go deep into the industries that we're serving to make sure that we're realizing all of their needs as we build these relationships and get our systems into the field. But we're also looking for how the same technologies can apply to different niche applications in adjacent industries. Love it. So looking kind of broadly at the robotics space out there, you know, I think if you're outside of robotics or outside of manufacturing, the the story from the media tends to be, you know, robots are, are stealing <laughs> our jobs and they're killing like Terminator, right? <laughs> and those of us who are inside and work inside of manufacturing all know that like, no, 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 like there's a labor crisis. There's jobs that can't get done. There are complexities and it's hard to recruit the, the young workforce who doesn't want to work in factories or, or whatever. And so I think the the media perspective, it's like one extreme or the other. Robots are killing us or robots are saving us. <laughs> as, as a couple people who are deeply embedded in this space, like what's your take on it? What's the, what's the, the reality from your perspective? I mean, I think the reality is it's both and neither. I think that it's really a 
hot topic right now to talk about robots taking jobs. And I think on the other side of things, you have evangelists who are talking about how robots open up opportunity and are actually creating jobs and potentially saving our economy. And I think the reality is it's a spectrum. And depending on how individual business owners choose to use robotics, it could be either end of that. I think the part of the conversation that's most missing that I think really adds substance to it is thinking about the specific tasks that are taken away from the operator's experience. So when we installed the box hopper at Accurate Box, our biggest fans were actually the operators whose jobs we took away, not because they lost employment, but because the task of loading 9,000 pounds an hour of boxes onto a machine was no longer part of their responsibilities. And so as we move forward and figure out the nuance of this conversation, it's a really important topic to discuss. And I think it's a really important one to really dig into. It's important to center the people that we're talking about rather than just talk about them as a talking point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think in so many ways, when you really look at those jobs, I mean, I think it's an amazing experience for somebody. We install a system uh, the day before they were loading you know, yeah, four to 9,000 pounds an hour. And, and the next day they're there managing a robotic automation system. You know, they're still there. They're still watching it. They still have expertise in how the, you know, the boxes go in. And that next day, you know, they're a robot operator. That is a really good experience as well. And so I think from those ways, it, yeah. But, you know, also there there's the other side, you know, in, in so many ways, you know, if we look at, you know, not so much jobs, but, you know, where is robotics at in terms of, you know, right. Is, is Terminator going to show up and are these robot arms going to start like, you know, just like, you know, taking their fences down and and who knows. But, you know, I, I think right now in a lot of ways, the robotic space is safe. You know, the safety for humans is well established and robots, uh, you know, you put them in a cage and you you set up the normal safety systems like light curtains and door interlocks. And, and you have we have procedures in so, so many ways. It's it's a very safe model for humans. But something that people don't think about a lot is how, how safe is it for uh, machinery and how safe is it for, you know, downtime. And, and, you know, so there's other things that, you know, it really, when you really break down this problem, there are still gaps. This is something we're passionate about. You know, there's, there's situations where we, we take over robotic cells and we find, you know, we open up and there's a PLC inside of it and we pull the code out of it. And, you know, it's very clear that somebody has just, you know, put up a bunch of rungs on there and they're kind of running the system. And, and there's a lot of people who have experience that are like, oof, like, I don't know what will happen if I change that one value in that box. And so when you look up behind the cover, like it's safe. And most of these automation systems on there on the service, they, they do their jobs really well. I, I think when it comes down, when you peel that back a little bit, though, is like, how easy is it to modify something and then have confidence that, you know, the system isn't going to destroy itself or or there isn't going to be excessive downtime. And so some of the things that I think we're really looking at in terms of safety, in terms of machine safety versus human safety, and some of these, there's still a lot to kind of uncover and talk about and, and make progress in. And so you know, those are some of the things that we're really passionate about taking from project to project so that, you know, these machine safety or confidence that you know what's going to happen when you change a value somewhere deep in some code or or whatever that looks like is a better experience overall for the operators and for the the people maintaining this machinery. I think that's a good point. And I think something that's really important when we're talking about 
that experience of small and medium-sized manufacturers is it's not enough to have a system that functionally works. It has to work for them. And so if it requires changing something to debug it or to add a new configuration, and you can't rely on that to not crash an element somewhere else, then you're going to have this fear around the system that you have no idea what it's going to do. And so what we really try to do is we install systems that are turnkey, where our operators never have to get into the robot code itself. We're able to log in remotely if they need help with monitoring, debugging, or assistance. But we really take all the robotics expertise and hold that in-house so that they can be machine operators and not have to rely on something that they may not feel comfortable doing. Yeah, that makes plenty of sense to you guys are the experts. And I, I imagine there's probably a lot of scenarios where robotic solution gets deployed and it just doesn't get utilized uh, because, and, and geez, what a, what a huge upfront investment that just gets wasted because either it isn't turnkey um, or that they don't have the proper training in place. So the approach you're taking makes a lot of sense from my perspective. Yeah, we, we hear it all the time. I mean, it's something that we like to talk to manufacturers around us in Vermont and in the local area, but anybody. And so we try to visit as many people as possible. And it's it's a very common theme. I mean, software being the most expensive part of the integration at the end of the day uh, to actually get the system working. A lot of systems are getting bolted down. They do 90% of the requirements, but at the end of the day, their throughput is down. And or at the end of the day, when it goes down, it's down for a week. And that's just unacceptable for manufacturers, especially in like the medium size and, and well, for anybody really. And there's no solutions. And so a lot of people in the last decade have kind of been promised the flexibility of robotics without backing that with with real success and reliability. And so there, there are a lot of people who are getting burned. And, and, and it's something that I think has is slowing down the integration of robotics in general. And I think a lot of people are promising these flexible architectures that can do anything for you. But when the rubber meets the road, it's... Is it going to do the thing you need it to do? Every day, 20 hours, 20, 20, three shifts a day. I mean, and so the the industries that we're working with require that. And, and so we're, we're really focused on making sure that that's a professional experience that does not lead to excessive downtime. I mean, it's something that's been hammered into me forever because, you know, when the ship sails, the ship really does sail. And so the cost of, you know, flying even a $5 part to the middle of the ocean is so unacceptably expensive that I think it's something that we can really bring to this is that two is one. And it's really, really important that these robots work and that they're reliable every single day and that they they meet the requirements of where they're getting installed, which is why systems like Boxhopper that have been fielded and tested and we understand the limits and expectations that are are much more, we've reduced the risks greatly on the robotic integrations and they feel a lot more like machines. It's something that we would really like to have our systems feel like integrated machines and less like kind of a, a robot that can do anything. That's great. Okay, let's take a quick break here. I want to let a couple of our strategists at Gorilla76 tell you about something pretty cool that we're doing right now for marketing folks in the manufacturing sector. Peyton and Brendan, take it away. So I'm Peyton Warren. And I'm Brendan Forrest. Twice a month, we host a live event called Industrial Marketing Live. Right now, we have a group of 50 plus industrial marketers from a variety of manufacturing organizations that meet up digitally to learn, ask questions, network, and get smarter. Every session has a designated topic. And one of our team members at Gorilla76 opens up by teaching for the first half hour or so. Topics have included how to do a better manufacturing webinar, getting started with paid social on LinkedIn, how to optimize your website for conversions, creating amazing video content, and so much more. 
after we break it down, we open it up to Q&A so we can help you apply all of this in your own businesses. This is pure value, no cost, no strings attached, no product or service pitches, just a 100% unadulterated learning experience. And on top of these live sessions, we've also opened up a Slack channel where attendees bounce ideas off each other and learn together between sessions. We're building a true community of manufacturing marketing professionals here. So if you or someone at your company has the word marketing in his or her job title, please consider telling them about it. They can visit industrialmarketinglive.com to register. We'd love to see you there. You know, this space is just changing and evolving so quickly right now. What are some of the trends you're seeing right now in robotics and automation? Yeah, I mean, some of the big trends that we're seeing is is as computational power is increasing, we're seeing a lot more at the edge. It's something that we're really excited about. I mean, the cost of computing and the complexity of the sensors and the ability to just really put a lot more intelligence right there at the cell is going exponentially faster. And so what that's enabling is just a much more connected, a much smarter. There's a lot more that you can do right there where the operator is, right where the machine is, right where. And so that level of feedback is, is changing a lot. I mean, a, another thing that we're seeing is just right all, all the sensing and all, all the capabilities are getting much more integrated with a lot more technology, a lot more communications. I think we're we're slowly moving out of, you know, digital systems and moving more and more, I mean, more out of just kind of on-off systems to more digital communication systems where we're getting higher level information, we're getting a lot more information. And with that information, there's a lot more insights. It's another thing that we're really excited for is extracting information that the operators, but also just the, the managers of the operations need to to make more boxes every day, or, you know, we're working on injection molding right now and to make more parts and, and to do more of the process in line. So we're seeing a lot more of the functions getting closer and closer to the machines doing it. And I think there's some of them. I think in general, robotics architectures are increasing a lot. Software uh, architectures are increasing. What they can do and people are getting more access to more functions. I mean, computer vision is a, is a good example of that. People are coming out of school with much more. There's, I mean, obviously AI is kind of the thing that lots of people are talking about. But, you know, in the next 10 years, I think we're going to see just an explosion of robotic applications in a lot of ways. I think we're going to find we're able to really push the boundaries of of what robots can do before it was a lot of exact motion, high tolerance stuff. And, and we're starting to be able to do more and more of things that change more. They're more dynamic to their situations. And, and so it, it's a really exciting time. I think robotics right now is just at the point where it can really spread into a lot more applications than where it was before in a way that is robust and manageable. And I think it's going to help us really bring back manufacturing. So it's an exciting time. I think right now we're in this point where this move to digital controls is allowing robotics to become so much more accessible to developers. There are now drag and drop apps. You don't even need to know how to code. There are some where you could DIY your entire cell setup if you're doing a cobot, you know, so it allows people to get into robotics programming from a variety of backgrounds. I think what'll be really interesting and what we're just starting to see emerge is more focus on the operator experience. And that's where we see accessibility to robotics really blowing up is when robots are deployed in a way that operators feel comfortable using those applications right out of the box. Yeah, all, all great stuff there. So Diane and Colin, we were just seeing this explosion of manufacturing technology uh, over the last few years industry 4.0 technology companies, vision systems, robotics, AI, you know, I, and I know a lot of our audience listening kind of fits into 
one of those worlds in addition to the traditional manufacturing audience that that listens in. But you know, it's kind of speaking to the technology companies out there. I, I know it can be really challenging, or at least I imagine it can be really challenging to stand out when you're trying to raise capital because there's I think probably a lot of investors don't really even know what, you know, they don't understand the technology the way you do. There's so many options. And you know, I know you guys have had some success raising capital. I'm curious what that process has looked like for you and what advice you have to offer to others who are kind of, you know, in, in the seat you've been in. For us, it's all about network. And this is a network that Colin and I have developed over the past 15 years as we've burgeoned our professional careers. When we started Rigorous, even before the company was founded, we were reaching out to investors and CEOs of local companies. And being in Vermont, we have great access to leadership of other technology companies. People are very willing, whether they're a venture capitalist or whether they're a CEO, they see new companies come up and they have been more than generous with their time and advice to kind of guide us along the way, I think in a way that they didn't get to experience themselves. So really leveraging that, we were talking to people before we even launched Rigorous about the core idea. You know, this is conceptually what we're thinking. Do you think this has legs? And then Right after I joined the company in 2021, we founded an advisory board so that we always had people who were, one, giving us that insight and causing us to really think about more of the long-term planning rather than the day-to-day, which I'm sure you know you get stuck in when you're managing a business. You're very focused on what's happening right in front of you. So this helps with the larger vision. But it also gave us an opportunity to tell people our plans publicly and then follow through on them. And the more often you follow through on something that you said you're going to do as a company, the more people really start believing in what you say you're going to do next. And so we went through a few of those cycles until our advisors were are talking with their communities about this tech company they're really excited about. Our customers are excited about the experience they're having working with us because we delivered what we said we were going to deliver. And all of those things really come to a head when you're raising capital because people want to talk to references. People want to get on the phone with your customers. People want to talk to people who are excited about investing in you. And if you've already been doing the groundwork for years before you ever ask anyone for a dollar, then you're in a much stronger position. And so that was really successful for us. I wouldn't say it's a quick win or a silver (laughs) bullet. But with all things, I think consistency and follow through is 90% of the game. Yeah, no silver bullet. At the end of the day, it's hard work. And and, and yeah, I I think as Diane said, a lot of it was, you know, setting a big vision and showing that roadmap and showing we're clearly on that roadmap. And, you know, year after year, people, you know, people would say like, wow, that's ambitious. And then the next year, like, Wow, you did that. You did that. <laughs> <laughs> and like, yeah, yeah. And, and and so that year after year, that it's 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 been a really good experience. It's it's fun. Well, that's that's really great. So that's speaking to, you know, potential investors raising capital and all that. How do you build trust with your market, your your future customer base as a young company? Because I mean, I was there once, right? I've I've been running this co-leading this agency for 17 years now, but I can remember those early days of for us where it was you know, well, show us, show us results you've seen for, you've done for, you know, for others. And I'm like, I mean, we just started. Right. And, and so there's, 
I know it's it's hard to it's kind of a chicken egg situation there sometimes early on. And I applaud anybody who can get through those first couple of years and get off the ground and start building a customer base because it's it's not easy when you don't have a lot to show for yet, other than maybe your past experience elsewhere. But how how do you build trust? How have you guys had had success doing that early on? Yeah, yeah, it, it's a, it's a big deal. And so two ways. I mean, one is that we really work with our customers closely at the beginning. We really to make sure that we understand requirements. We understand we the first part of the company, the first three, three and a half years. You know, we were really focused on research development. So the type of programs, the way we ran those projects, it was really critical for that. You know, it allows us to. It gives us time to establish requirements and to make sure that we understand their problem and to have feedback from them. And so we really make sure that we understand what we're doing before we start doing it. And and so that that helps a tremendous amount. But again, just kind of back to the that network of. In the very early days, we were, again, working with people in our network that already knew us. And so in a lot of ways, we were able to short circuit that again by working within our trusted network, people who knew us really well, already trusted us. And so in the very early days, it was leveraging this network of people that we've worked with for a long time and and doing projects for them at first. But then, you know, slowly people see our systems and and they're like, hey, that can do what we need. Could you do that for us? And so we, we kind of just kept building, slowly building a technology, using that as a stepping stone to get to the next, you know, and, and, and again, like the running the same modules over and over again provides a lot of, of confidence. And, and so, cause you can show somebody like, look, this is it working here. We're going to use this part of that. That'll do this part of it. And really breaking down those requirements, communicating the customer, working with their operators and their teams, their manu- you know, maintenance teams to, to really get buy-in on the systems that we're delivering. And that slow and methodical process of of determining what they need and how it's going to operate and who's going to operate it and has worked really, really well for us. Yeah, I will add that I think it's pretty common for manufacturing customers to not actually know all of their requirements when they're scoping the project. And they don't know exactly how the robot is going to functionally do its job because they're not robotics experts. That's why they went to a robotics company. And so giving the space and process to allow those requirements to emerge as the designs are created is critically important when you're standing up something new. I think what we try not to do is submit a proposal and then say, we will build this because they might say, great, looks perfect. But at the end of the day, it doesn't take into consideration all the nuance that's going to determine whether or not it functionally works well for them. And so we really partner with our clients and we're small enough now as a team of 11 where we can take the time and space to have really consistent communications back and forth throughout the entire development and testing process to allow them to weigh in and allow us to make modifications without doing a huge program overhaul. And that's been really successful for the end of our programs. You know, I think it can feel a little new for people while they're going through it. But at the end of the day, when we install the system and it works for them, they're a little blown away at how quickly those last steps take because all of the work has already been done. Great answers. So Colin, Diane, what do you see on the horizon for rigorous? What's next? Yeah. So, so right now we're, we're really focused on box hoppers. We're reaching out to people in the corrugated box industry and and we're very excited to start standing up. So we're standing up a number of products right now. So the first one is box hopper and and the next one though, is for injection molding. So we're excited in 2024, we're actually going to be launching a new product to manage parts coming out of injection molding machines. And so we are just concluding some 
injection molding projects right now, actually. And, and so we've gotten some experience in the field and, and have been able to do some really amazing things. So we're excited to start kind of chipping away at the next application that, that we think we can really add some value to. But after that, we're, we're, we're really excited to kind of dig deeper into the injection molding industry. I mean, we, we're kind of going slow intentionally. We really want to get to know our industries and to focus on the people who, who need robotics help. We are consistently standing up more box hoppers, just a few a year. And then we also are working with some of our partners in Corrugated to look at other areas of their floor that they want to automate. So now we're looking at loading digital printers, things that are very similar, but slightly different so that we can take, again, a good chunk of what we've already developed that's already field tested, make modifications on top of it so it meets more needs of the market. Well, Diane and Colin, really great conversation today. Can you tell our audience how they can get in touch with you and where they can learn more about what you're doing at Rigorous? You can visit us on the web at rigorous.co or find us on LinkedIn at Rigorous Technology. Beautiful. Well, appreciate you guys doing this. Congrats on the success you've had so far. I think you're doing some really cool things and I love the way you've been able to build your business up from scratch. So so best of luck going forward here. And, and again, thanks for being a guest. Thank you. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. As for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of the Manufacturing Executive. You've been listening to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com slash learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.